The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod, your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of mourning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn you are not relent. You are priests forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute the kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among his nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook of the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Thank you for that reading. Good evening. As we just read, we're going to go over Psalm 110. Uh, We're going to look at a few aspects of the Messiah. This is a Messianic Psalm. It speaks of uh, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, and it uh, it actually is entirely attributed to the Lord Jesus. Sometimes some of the Psalms refer to a little bit of David and part uh, to the Lord. Um, But this one speaks entirely to our Savior. Uh, It's one of the most quoted Messianic Psalms, 15 times, I believe, in the New Testament. And get started. Okay. Verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. If you had stopped here, if you had never picked up the scriptures before, that would seem slightly confusing. Uh, It is confusing. Um, The Lord said to my Lord, who is he talking talking to? Who is he talking about? The... The word used, capitalized, is the Hebrew for Jehovah, and the second Lord is Adon, which is Master. Closer. Thank you. Oh, that's good. You hear me now? I can hear me too. It's really loud. Um, so Jehovah and Master. Who is the Master? If if you'd only read this psalm, it would be confusing. And uh, Jesus, when he was speaking with the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they actually used this to trip him up. And so, or they were using uh, other questions to trip him up. They wanted to test him. So we see the Sadducees um, questioning him in uh, in Matthew 24, and they couldn't they couldn't come up with an answer for his question, and. Then we go on in verse 41 of chapter 22, actually, I'm sorry, and of Matthew. And the Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. You know, what really stood out to me um, right there in that conversation is if you go back to verse 34, it says, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. The Sadducees got shut down. So they said, "Okay, we're going to do this. We can take him. It's totally pride. And the Lord asked them a simple question just based on what they should know. These are supposed to be the experts of the law, and they couldn't answer it. Well, the only answer is that this person, the Messiah, would have to be God and man. 
And this is what Jesus was proclaiming. They didn't want to believe that. There's no way. So why would they believe it? To them, it was blasphemy. But that's the only way that would work. So if we ask again, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now we can know for sure the only way that would make sense if it was indeed the Lord Jesus. And he is to sit at the right hand of the Father till he makes his enemies his footstool. So God has a work to finish. He's telling him to sit until all enemies will be subdued and placed under his feet. Verse 2, The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Jerusalem is going to be the capital. We're looking forward into the future now. Um, when the, all the enemies of the Lord are, are crushed and he, the Lord, um, Jehovah the Lord, establishes his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom in Jerusalem, and he's uh, ruling from Jerusalem. Here we'll see um, the nations crushed, but there will be some individuals left. And uh, some scholars say that's who they're talking about, these enemies here. And other scholars say that uh, there will be the remnant of Israel that's left that has now seen the truth and has come to the Lord and um, been converted. And that can also be attributed to the beginning of verse 3. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. No one is being coerced. They are willingly offering their loyalty and service to the Lord at this point. They see his power, his physical power, Manifested here on earth, he's ruling from the throne. And they're volunteers in verse 3. The next part of verse 3, commentators say this is one of the most difficult things to translate or try to come to a a conclusion on what the meaning is. So I'm thankful for everyone, or however it was that I was selected for this portion to get the difficult parts. But it was an interesting study, the womb of the morning. These are very poetic. This is very poetic language used here. Uh, And the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. There's there's two things we're talking about here, strength and youth. What the author is trying to get across here through the spirit is that when the Lord is coming in his power, when he takes over, this is not a war-battered, weary, uh, um, battled soldier. He is a fresh, powerful, ready-to-go, ruling king. He's not a beaten-down warrior. And this idea of dew, which comes in the morning from that early, uh, from the darkness, you see, as the sunlight starts to hit the grass, you see all these little sparkles and pops millions of them. There's, there's so much there, and it speaks of just... Um, youth, it's fresh, it's new and uh, that's the idea that is trying to be portrayed here this is not a uh, war-beaten or wearied warrior he is fresh in his strength he is new in his strength and he's just beginning his reign of power and authority okay Uh, just as an overview I forgot to go over this first one through three we we read about the king Verse 4, we're going to talk about um, the priest. And verse 5 through 7, the judge, Messiah as judge. So 1 through 3 is the king. I just want to make a couple of quick comparisons between uh, Lord Jesus as king and other kings we see in Scripture. The first one is Saul. We don't read about any other kings in Scripture that 
were kings and priests. Um, only one, Melchizedek, which we'll get to. Um, but there were two that tried to act like priests. Now, I gave, actually, I was going to ask the kids. I gave one of the answers away. Uh, well, I, uh, there's two that I know of that came to my mind. Uh, does anyone else, anyone under 10, 15? 15. If you want to take a guess at one of the other kings that tried to act like a priest or do the duties of a priest. Anyone? It starts with a U. That's the one I got. Yes. Excellent. Rhymes with Zaya? Yes? Uzziah, okay. So we'll start with <laughs> we'll start with Saul. Uh, in Samuel thirteen we we see that um, Samuel had told Saul to go wait. Wait to make the offering. Saul got impatient and he made the offering. It was not his place as king to make the offering. And what happens, we see in uh, Samuel 13 that because he did what he wasn't supposed to do, this wasn't his place or his role, the kingdom was stripped away from him. Listen to the words that Samuel says. And it's interesting, too, that, okay, we'll just read it. Um, Then he waited seven days. This is 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 8. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had offered, had finished presenting the burnt offering, that Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, "Uh, What have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal. And I've not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord, your God, which he commanded you. For now, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. The kingdom was stripped away. He lost it. He lost it for him, his sons and forever because he disobeyed and he went outside of what his role called him to do. The priest, the role of the priest is very specific. There are very specific rules, um, so much process and procedure And he just didn't have the heart to do it. Even if he wanted to do it, he didn't have the heart to do it. He wasn't even in the right tribe. He was the wrong person. But he chose to do it. He said, I felt compelled. There's a lesson for us. We feel compelled to do a lot of things. But we have to to consider, should I be doing this? Is this my place or role? What he did when he felt compelled was he also caused the people to send too. He asked someone to bring him that sacrifice, and they willingly did it. He included his people with him. Our, our decisions have consequences beyond just us. Something to consider. Okay, the next king, Uzziah. <clears throat> Uzziah did the same thing. He tried to step into a role that was not his. He decided he was going to offer incense before the Lord. And this picture, I couldn't find too many pictures uh, of this, but this one was the closest I could get. I don't know if you could see it, but there's white spots on his forehead. That was leprosy, where he was stuck, struck with on his forehead. Now, what's not necessarily ironic, but the priest, if you can see in the corner there, that's the high priest, 
and he has a gold plate on his forehead that says on it, holiness to the Lord. He's in the right outfit. He has the right lineage. He has the appropriate training. He was selected essentially through the Lord and he's doing it, his role properly. And interesting that leprosy, which represents sin, is what struck him on his forehead, King Uzziah, and the priest has holiness to the Lord, the complete opposite. I don't think there was a coincidence that he was struck on his forehead. That was a glaring example for us for all eternity, from now to um, eternity, <laughs> uh, for us to remember how not to behave. Um, and to recognize where is the place, uh, where we should be involved, um, and not to step outside of what we're called to be. And then we have the Lord Jesus as king. He said he was a king. In um, John chapter 18, before Pilate, he said, he's talking to Pilate, and he tells Pilate, I am a king but not of this world, one that's to come. And he is the only one who can offer himself the perfect lamb and be the great high priest at the same time. Men have fit, where men failed, the Lord succeeded because he's the perfect son of God. Melchizedek, we had mentioned this before. We're now in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. First time we read about Melchizedek is in Genesis. And Abraham had just come back from rescuing Lot and his family. Um, and Melchizedek comes out to greet him. And Abraham offers him a tithe of all that was taken back. Uh, and he, interestingly, he brings out, Melchizedek brings out bread and wine. And he's, his title is Melchizedek, King of Salem. Salem is a shortened form of Jerusalem. And his name means a king of righteousness, and Salem is peace, king of peace, righteousness and peace. First time bread and wine are mentioned together in scripture. Interesting. And I don't think that's a coincidence either, obviously. Um, it's one other thing that brings Jesus and Melchizedek together. So when he, the Lord is saying here, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, Jesus brought bread and wine out to the disciples as a, as a symbol of what they were to remember, his body, his blood. And when here in Psalms, um, the Lord says, you will be according to this order, anyone who's reading through scripture later on would be able to see those two and make that as one more connection to Melchizedek and his order. So again, he's mentioned in three books, Genesis, Psalms, and Hebrews. Genesis is arguably the greatest book of history. Psalms, the greatest book of poetry. And Hebrews, one of the greatest books of doctrine. So those three, history, poetry, and doctrine, would be incomplete without Melchizedek. The same is for Jesus. The same is for our Lord. History, poetry, and doctrine, according to how we live, the New Testament pattern of life, would be incomplete without our Lord. <clears throat> and this comparison is to show the difference between the Aaronic line and Melchizedek's line. We don't read anything else about Melchizedek. We don't see anything about a lineage. We don't see that he died. We don't see that he has children. So, in essence, he never died. So, he lives on forever. 
um, his role as priest of the Most High God, or he was priest of God Most High, uh, was not inherited. The Lord established that. And it doesn't end. And he's the only other king priest or priest king that we read of in Scripture until we come to Hebrews and we read about our Lord. Some scholars consider him to have been just a man. Others say he was Christ pre-incarnate. Oh, forgot to advance these slides. Okay, we already covered this. Okay, we'll do a couple of quick reviews of some other priests. Aaron. Aaron made the golden calf. I think we can all remember that. And when we read about that, I, I like that multiple people have brought this out when he says, and they said, what did you do? He said, I, I just put the gold in the fire and this calf popped out. I mean, it just sounds so silly. Nobody would believe that ever. Uh, but that's what he said. It just came out. He purposely did it. And one of the, one of the greatest mistakes of that was he led the people away from the Lord. All Israel, except a few, worshipped that idol. His mistake as priest, the first priest, he led the people away from the Lord. Eliashib and Nehemiah. Eliashib had some pretty terrible mistakes as well. He was allied with an enemy that the Lord forbid. He was friends with Tobiah, an Ammonite. Ammonites were not allowed to be anywhere near the temple, let alone live in it. And that's exactly what Eliashib did. He allowed this Ammonite to live in the temple. And that specific room is where the food and stores for the Levites were kept. So they didn't have food. So they had to go work. So now if they're out working, they can't serve. His mistake, horrendous on so many, so many levels, caused the, the servants of the Lord to be kept from serving him. So Aaron led the people away from the Lord. Elishab prevented the people from serving the Lord. One thing that stood out to me here, um, if I can mention it quickly, uh, in Nehemiah chapter 3, and they're talking about building the wall. Um, they talk about the different sections that are built, who built them, and which part they're building. Now listen to these words. It's in Nehemiah 3. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, carefully repaired the other section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Meramoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. So we have one section of wall, the door, and then the other section of the house of Eliashib. This is how the chapter starts. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren the priests and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. The sheep gate is probably one of the most prominent gates used. I mean, they, they sacrifice sheep all the time. It would be a very prominent thing to do. And I had to think, like, why did he choose to build there? And as I was just thinking about it, when you get to the end of the chapter, you see Nehemiah running off someone. Chapter 13. Verse 28. <clears throat> One of the sons of Joida, the son of Elias of the high priest, 
was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I drove him from me. To put this all together, <clears throat> Elisha, high priest, allied with an Ammonite. He allows him to live in the tent. He builds a section of the wall that has something to do with something prominent, something um, unique that everyone would see over and over as they walked in and out through it. Instead of building the wall to his own house, I would submit to you, this is a lesson for us fathers, soon-to-be fathers, those young men that are going to be married. We are responsible for building the wall of our homes. What we allow to come in will won't just affect us in the in the near in the near future. It has ramifications for the long term. This is pretty much the same uh, idea that our brother uh, Shikarji spoke about a couple of weeks ago. The long term effects of the decisions that we make. We see Eliashib allying himself with an Ammonite, and then what does his grandson do? He marries someone from Beth Horon, which is allied with Moab, not Israel. Grandson, and Nehemiah drove him away. If I would say. There's a, a lesson there to the wall that is for our home. The husband or the leader of the home is responsible for building that wall that permits and lets things in and out. And we should be cognizant of that. Our, the, what we let in will affect our children and our children's children. Then we have Caiaphas, which this is from the movie, actually. And I believe he's the one on the far right. And that's his father-in-law, both high priests. There is nowhere that I saw that um, there's supposed to be two high priests. There's only ever one. But yet we read in, I believe it's Matthew, no, Luke 3, Luke 3, 2. It says, in that year, both were high priests. Where did that come from? They just decided to. It's his father-in-law and his son. They made it up. They're moving away from the principle of the Lord's law, the Lord's principles, and they just decided to make up their own and allow two men to be high priests. Aaron led the people away from the Lord. Eliashib kept the people from serving the Lord. Caiaphas turned the people against the Lord. He was the one who was responsible for saying, uh, for uh, pushing him to be sacrificed, uh, to be crucified. Interesting thing about Caiaphas, and I've mentioned this before, so bear with me. Um, When the Lord was standing before him, he asked him who he was. And he said, he said, yes, I am the son of God. And he tore his robe. Now, from Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we read and know that the robes of the priest were made not to be torn. They were made not to be torn. And it's outside of their conduct to be enraged with emotion and tear their robe. That's outside of their conduct. They're supposed to be sober-minded and um, calm for their duties. And nothing that would uh, bring reproach to them and their testimony as holy should be done. And then we see him standing before the Lord saying blasphemy and tearing his robe. He purposefully tore his robe. What's interesting is just a few chapters later, you'll see the centurions gambling for the Lord's robe. They're gambling for it because they don't want it to be torn. So you could say that even down to his clothing, the Lord was 
perfect. I don't think, I always wondered, why is that portion there? I'm not saying that it's exactly why this is there, but it just lines up for me. Why is that portion there that the, the centurions are gambling for his rope? It seems so minute. Perhaps it's so that we can make that connection. He's perfect, down to his clothing. His conduct was perfect. Perfect character. John 4. The disciples, when they came back, they saw him speaking with the woman at the well and says they marveled that he was alone with the woman. He was above reproach. He never tore his robe. And understanding. Listen to the words of Malachi. Chapter 2. This is the Lord speaking about Malachi, but listen to the words and see if they apply to the Lord. The law of truth was in his mouth and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge and people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. I don't think that could apply to Caiaphas. Definitely not Caiaphas. Maybe some of the other priests throughout history and Aaron. But the Lord is the only one who could 100% fulfill that. Once he was offered, there will be no more offerings. He was the final offering. We sing that hymn, no blood, no altar now. It's no longer needed. Next we move on to judge. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Fairly gruesome words. But he is the righteous judge. He is the only one allowed to make such judgment. Joel verse chapter 3 reads, For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations, speaking about the valley of Jehoshaphat at the end, when he would um, defeat his enemies there, just outside Jerusalem. There I will sit to judge. Revelation 19, In righteousness he judges and makes war. The Lord is the only righteous judge. And there will come a time when there will be much death, much much destruction. But he's the only righteous judge, so he is the only one able to pass such judgment. Other judges, especially in, in history from uh, the Old Testament, didn't always prove to be as perfect. If we consider Gideon one of the first few judges. We see the Lord gave him a great victory. The Lord called out to him and said, Gideon, mighty man of valor. And we see he's hiding in the wine press at the time. He's hiding. And maybe he had a right to do so. They're, they were being raided. Uh, and he was trying to preserve his the little that he had. And he's threshing there, hiding in the wine press. He says, mighty man of valor. And the first thing he does is complain. He said, well, why is all this stuff happening then, Lord? And then the Lord says, go in this strength of yours. And then he starts whining. Like, oh, we're the smallest tribe. I'm the smallest guy. I really don't have what it takes. And then you see that the Lord, he does eventually come to 
his senses, accepts that the Lord tests the Lord with the fleece. And then he has his massive victory. With just a few men, he defeats this great enemy. And then what does he do? They, the people want to make him their king. He says, no, 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 I won't roll over you. But just give me the earrings that you plundered. Just the earrings. And in the picture you see, he made a golden ephod. He made a golden ephod. And listen to what happened. In Judges chapter 8. Then Gideon made it into an ephod with the golden earrings that we just mentioned and set it up in his city, Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. All Israel, Gideon and his house. You know, Lord gave him such a massive victory, great victory, and he was nothing. He himself said, I'm nobody. And then he could turn around and use this victory and it became an idol to him, literally. He made it into an idol. That's a lesson for us too. Sometimes we may feel victorious in something, an area of our life, a specific matter, whatever that is. Are we making it an idol? And if we, if we have, who is it stumbling? Is it just us? Or is it our family? <coughs> and those around us, the assembly, our people. Something to consider. Has a success the Lord has given me become an idol in my life? Another judge, Samson. This one may almost seem easy. We, every time we think about Samson, we always consider all the bad things. And yeah, he had a lot of bad things that he did. But this this one portion. Oh, what I my mouse. This picture is uh, him carrying the gates of Gaza away. Just a few chapters before, he has a battle and he is he won. Um, the one where he's he fought with a jawbone of a donkey, killed all these men, and he's he won. And then he cries out to the Lord, saying, "You gave me this victory, and you're going to let me die of thirst." He's not showing much respect there, is he? Um, he has almost no regard for the power that he did that with. It wasn't him. It was the Lord's working through him to do this, this uh, mighty work, mighty, mighty uh, victory. So he pulls this gate out of the city. He pulls up the posts, everything, and he carries it up to the top of a hill. This hill faces Hebron. Hebron is the name of the the new name of the old city, Kiriath Arba. Arba was the mightiest of the Anakim, which is where Goliath comes from. Um, not Goliath. He's one of the mightiest giants, Arba. I just found it interesting that he would take it up and bring it to the top of this hill. Why? Joshua went up and defeated those giants. 80 years old. He said, give me that mountain. I'll take it. I would submit that he, this whole uh, portion is him usurping authority. He is saying, I, I have no authority under me. Look what I can do. I can just rip gates out. When we read about gates, we read about a place 
with authority. Legal transactions were done at the gates of the city. Abraham bought Sarah's tomb from, I can't remember the guy's name, but they did it at the gates of the city. Job sat at the gates of the city. It says, when he came to the gate, princes stopped talking and covered their mouths. This was a place, place where important people gathered and legal transactions were done, like purchasing land or Boaz redeeming Ruth was done at the gate. We see Samson ripping the gates off the city and taking it up a hill that faces a city that used to be controlled by giants but was crushed by one man and his, and his men with him that was not a giant. I think all of this was just, perhaps I would submit to you, him doing this to show that I don't have authority over me. It doesn't matter who I come up against. It doesn't matter who's, how strong they are. I am my own authority. The next chapter we read about his downfall. And the Lord used something, what might have been seemingly small in his life, the affections of a woman. And it was what led to his downfall. Something small. He thought he was so big. And the Lord used something seemingly small to bring him down. Judges that failed. Jesus never abused his position or power. When we look at when he was tempted by Satan, Satan said, throw yourself down from the high place. And you can call angels. They're supposed to protect you from getting hurt. And he said, do not tempt the Lord your God. He didn't abuse his position or his power. Matthew 26. Do you not, this is the Lord just saying, do you not... Do you think that I cannot now pray for my father to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Considering that one angel has killed thousands of people over and over again in different um, accounts in history in the Old Testament, one angel, one legion in a Roman legion has 6,000 soldiers. We're talking about 72,000 angels. Jesus is saying, I can call 72,000 angels right now. He doesn't do it. He doesn't abuse his position or power just for the sake of using it. He willingly subjected himself to the Father's authority. We read that he set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem, knowing how he was going to be abused there. And his reward for being in obedience and subjection to the Father's will was that all things were put under his feet as we read in Ephesians. Now it's Jesus to judge. Then we come to verse 7. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside, therefore he shall lift up the head. Scholars go back and forth in what this means. <clears throat> One scholar put it this way, he, he's, he's drink, he drinks to refresh himself after destroying his enemies and he lifts his head in victory. Another scholar reminds us that it's water is symbolic of the Holy Spirit and as the Savior is drinking, he's reinvigorated, strengthened by the Spirit so he can lift his head in victory. I would have to go with either one of those. I mean, I, they both sound... They both make sense. Um, But that is really the point. The Lord says, 
in verse 1, till I make your enemies your footstool. It's not if. It's definitive of, and the only question is a matter of when to us. Lord in eternity, outside of time, knows this is the point when it's going to happen. It's just till. And he knows, therefore he shall, not he might. He shall lift up the head, and that head will be lifted up in victory. All has been placed under the Lord's feet. He is the perfect king, the perfect priest, the perfect judge. Hopefully that was uh, encouraging, and um, as we understand a little, more, a little bit more about who the Savior is, and just as a comparison and contrast with different characters in Scripture, and we always will see the perfection of our Lord Jesus as the Savior, Um, as judge, king, and priest. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for the privilege it is to open your word. We thank you uh, that you are the perfect priest, king, and judge, and that your sacrifice not only met the needs for one, but for all, and that your sacrifice meets it for eternity, past, present, and future. Anyone that sins, anyone that comes to you, believes on your name, they are free, and they are saved. What a privilege to be called a child of God, Lord, and not just a child of God, but one with an inheritance. <clears throat> not just an inheritance, but a position we've been made royal priests. And not just with uh, one of position, but co-heirs with your son and to live forever. What a privilege to be known as a child of God and to be saved. We thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, we can spend this time to look into it. We just pray that you bless us um, with uh, the lessons you've brought out and that it be an encouragement to all that were here. And we pray that your blessing as we part, Lord, and we pray that uh, you would be with us till we meet again in your will. We pray all this in the name of your son, Lord Jesus. Amen.